Hey, this is Ali Ballas, and I am a victim of the 2020 lockdown. All joking aside, I just want to hang, and I've heard a lot of people saying the same, and sometimes with people who I don't even know. And as we've come to realize, that is not okay during a pandemic. Even though we can't meet in person, doesn't mean we can't get outside of our bubble. This is about learning new things, stepping outside, and all while staying home. Just because we can't hang, there still can't hang. This week on Can't Hang, I speak to Kate Graham, and this might be one of my favorite episodes yet. Kate is the embodiment of female empowerment in politics and stands for important issues that face those in her city and province, so far at least. I admire her most because she follows her passions wherever they lead, which has so far brought her into teaching at Western University, hosting a podcast focused on Canadian women in politics, and running to be the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. As a new mom, Kate has a new motivator as she fights to create a better world for her daughter Flora to live in. I really can't say enough about Kate, and I think you'll love her too. And now it is my pleasure to introduce you to Kate Graham, the political powerhouse. So this might be the most excited I've been to record an episode. I always try to relate how my guests know me or they don't know me. So just prior to COVID-19, my sister Claire was involved in Kate Graham's Ontario Liberal Leadership Campaign, um, to which, in my opinion, um, it was incredibly successful, although um, Kate didn't win the race. Um, We'll get to that a little bit later, though. So first, I'd like to welcome you, Kate. So welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you. Yes, of course. Yeah, so I'm so glad to have you. You no doubt chiseled out time as a new mom to speak with me and amongst other things too. But um, I know that scheduling can be a little crazy, I imagine. So I, j- I just got Florida to sleep. So that is the big accomplishment <laughs> of the day. She is oh. in the night. And so <laughs> I've got all the time in the world now or so. First of all, I know it's going to be great because it was such a good omen and I'm always like an omen person Um, and you were like so quick in getting back to me and I feel like that's just like my energy, like I love getting prepared for stuff and like you're definitely the quickest I've ever had, so that was already a good start. (laughs) Um, But there's so much to talk about with you and I definitely can't cover everything or we can't cover everything. So for anything we didn't cover, um, I'll share like a link to your campaign site because it's really great to see accomplishments or stuff that we didn't get to in greater detail. Um, So we'll share that at the end, just in case we don't get to anything um, that's important. Um, But as always, uh, I'd like to start from the beginning because your beginning holds the roots to your now. Um, And as you say, no second chances, which I was brushing up on today. (laughs) Um, All great stories uh, start from the beginning or something like that. So tell me about your childhood growing up in Southwest Ontario. Sure. So I grew up in a town called Exeter, which is about uh, half an hour outside of London. Uh, my parents are both teachers. We have uh, got uh, two younger siblings and um, yeah, had a, a kind of lovely storybook kind of childhood where, you know, living in a small town, you know, your neighbors, you walk to school, you, you know, stop along at your friend's house along the way. It was, it was great. 
Um, I did not grow up in a very political family, though. Um, we certainly had, you know, lots of my parents were really involved in the community, always doing lots of volunteer work, but they weren't involved in kind of capital P politics per se until uh, in the my Karis years, you know, them both being teachers, there were major cuts being made to education, which they really, uh, they're very strongly against. And so my first experience uh, in terms of kind of awakening to politics was when I was as a kid uh, living in Exeter and seeing my parents on the picket lines uh, protesting my Karis. Yeah. So I imagine that was similar. I obviously wasn't around in those times, but um, (laughs) I imagine it's similar to like the strikes um, and the picketing that we see today in Ontario, um, which I unfortunately was like, uh, Claire and I both were in high school during the time where Durham was in a rotating strike and we ended up being (laughs) at the rough end of the stick or whatever they say. Um, And we had six weeks of missed school. So I can sort of understand, not, I I guess, on the teacher side of things, but on the losing out on things type of thing in education, um, where you come from on that. Yeah, well, I think for me, it was it was kind of the first time I realized that, you know, we can't take for granted the things that are around us. So, mm-hmm. you know, we take for granted that, you know, we have access to public education and there are well-qualified, well-trained teachers who are paid a fair wage and, you know, that there are enough teachers to be able to offer the, you know, breadth of classes that, you know, that someone, a student like me would want to take. And, uh, and all of a sudden those things were under threat. And I, I hadn't really realized that sometimes we have to fight even just to keep the things that we have, let alone to progress as a society. And so it was an important moment for me to realize that, you know, politics is not just about, you know, turning out at elections or the people that you see on TV during debates. It's a very everyday kind of act about uh, pushing for the things that you think are important and the kind of world that you want to live in. Yeah, for sure. And I think these are all things that really resonated with your campaign. I think probably earlier this year, but also in your mayor project in 2016 um, and in kind of everything you do, I feel like this really resonates. That's why I say, like, I feel like that was like such a roots for you. And like, maybe I feel like you see it too, but like from the outside looking in, um, like you can really see like where your like interest in politics came from. You were already just so interested in it coming from a small age because honestly I feel like a lot of kids whose parents were on the picket line probably didn't even really know um so the fact that you even like knew what was going on stuff like that it it is speaking to like your character obviously but you decide to stay in southwestern Ontario and you study at western which I'm obviously a fan of yeah (laughs) (laughs) of course so how did your post-secondary education like moving on from public education to like different kind of public education, but uh, like post-secondary, how did it help lead you into like public service? So I started university thinking that I was going to become a teacher like my parents. Uh, I'd always loved art. And so I enrolled as as an art student and uh, it wasn't too long. I think it was two years into my undergrad when I, uh, two things happened. So number one, I realized that all the art that I was making was actually about politics. (laughs) And second, is I uh, needed a job, you know, tuition's expensive. And so I um, I was lucky to land a summer job working for a city councillor at London City Hall. And it was the first time that I really got to get up close and personal uh, with someone who was an elected official and uh, working in a political environment. And at City Hall, I saw 
a really different kind of politics from what I, what I, uh, you know, had ever encountered before. So, you know, every day there were people showing up at city hall because there were things that they wanted to fight for in their community. So, and maybe it was something small, like they wanted a stop sign at the end of their street. Cause they're, you know, a mom that's worried about their kid walking to school. Sometimes it was big things like we need a better transit system, or we need to support people experiencing homelessness or uh, facing mental health struggles. But you know, it wasn't just showing up and voting and the kind of traditional ways of engaging with politics that we think about. Uh, instead, it was people, you know, being willing to make changes that they wanted to see. And for me, that was a really powerful moment of, again, realizing that, you know, what politics looks like uh, in real life. And mm -hmm. so I decided to switch from my art major and plans to become a teacher into political science. And so when it changed my courses, I did a um, a second major and then a master's degree in public administration and then later on a PhD in political science. Which is like wild and we'll get to that in a second. So but you did kind of fulfill like after all that like you kind of you are an educator and that's how I um, came to kind of know you from you uh, yeah. instructing or, or whatever my sister um, in her women in politics class which I, I wish I took um, <laughs> but anyway it didn't allow but like what is like so fulfilling and like why did you like choose to go back to like education after you had kind of like shift ge shifted gears after switching out of art and like kind of giving up not giving up you kind of just shifted and like pivoted but uh what brought you back to teaching mm -hmm. is long and the short of it. Yeah, it's been, uh, I think, you know, sometimes we think of our careers being like a straight line between, mm -hmm. you know, A to Z and, and mine has uh, not been that at all. It's been much <laughs> more kind of following the the passions that I have at the moment or uh, problems that I would like to help uh, solve. So, uh, so after I did my master's, I started working at the city of London. Uh, I worked there for 10 years. Uh, I think I had six jobs in total. I started as an intern and I left as a director responsible for uh, a variety of four different portfolios, but the one that, um, sort of important to the story was the government relations. Okay. So that's the, uh, everything that the city of London is, is doing interacting with other governments. So the federal government, provincial government, uh, and indigenous governments. And in London, we had two big issues that uh, I thought were not moving fast enough. One was an investment in transit. Uh, we had a, the you know, largest city in the country without a rapid transit system, just absolutely terrible service. I'm, I'm, I ride the bus myself. And so, you know, you can only get uh, left at the curb in the cold and the snow so many times before you start <laughs> to get pretty angry about it. Yeah. <laughs> Including for I'm me, familiar so. with London transit. Yes, it's <laughs> terrible. So, uh, and, and not because of the, you know, the people involved are doing the best that they can, but we have never made a serious investment in transit for a city with a population of our size. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, it's an equity issue. It's a climate change issue. So yeah, I wanted to see uh, an investment in a rapid transit system. And then the second was around mental health. We had the second highest injection drug use rates in the country after Vancouver. And again, I, I felt like we were being treated like a small town instead of like a big city facing really severe problems. So both of those things needed help from Queen's Park. I'd been doing my job at City Hall uh, for uh, you know, years working on both of those files. And, uh, and then our MPP announced that she was not going to be running again. She asked me to run. My immediate answer was, uh, not a chance. I, <laughs> I like being behind the scenes. Uh, I like the work that I'm doing. And she said to me, she said, you know, you say you care about these, these things. 
what are you willing to do to see change happen? And that was not an easy question for me to sit with. And after lots and lots of thinking and soul searching, I decided to uh, quit my job at the city and run for office. And I, I'm, you know, we may get into talking about that, but okay. um, right around the same time, you know, that, that does not pay the bills. I have a mortgage. <laughs> so mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was really lucky to be able to transition at the same time. I, I quit my job at the city. I started teaching at Western uh, and the affiliates and, uh, and ran for office. So Okay. Yes. When you talk about all the jobs you've done, like it really resonates with me because I feel like I jump, not jump because you're always passionate about stuff and it shows and like your passions like relate, but I feel like I'm just like jumping all over the place. Like what I'm interested in at the time is like where I want to go. So like on that note, that's super inspiring to me that like you just like follow your path. So like that, that point and for someone like me or like my listeners, like that's really maybe it's not the same path as yours, like in, in public service and teaching and all that stuff, but it's, it's like a cool message because you're just following what you want to do. And like, it really shows like, don't stay at your job if you're not passionate about it. And like, if you know that there's something that you want to change, that's not where you are, like, it's okay to go somewhere else. Like, you know, obviously you have to pay the bills. However, um, it is important to like follow what you're passionate about. I could, I could not agree more. And I I think it's a point that we don't make often enough, especially with young people. So people coming out of university, you know, we have this idea of the straight line of, you know, I'm going to graduate law school and my goal is to be the managing partner to law firm. And I'm just going to try to climb that ladder as fast as I can for me. You know, I, I was in my sixth job at the city. I I don't actually speak about this um, uh, very often, but I, I, a few other things were happening at that same time, including that I was offered a job uh, in another city, a much bigger job with, you know, I had a pretty large staff team, but I, it was like a climb towards uh, oh, wow. becoming a city manager, which was what I thought at the beginning of working in the city was my goal. Mm-hmm. And so in traditional terms, it would have, you know, the two options I was looking at was bigger job, more money, bigger staff, more responsibility, or quit my job on a chance to run as a candidate, which pays $0, by the way, uh, for a party that was not doing very well in the polls. And so it's a, it's a pretty unconventional choice to choose mm-hmm. the one that's a bigger risk. But I, I'm, I'm so glad that I did because uh, for me, it was actually standing at the bus stop one day and thinking, you know, what do I really care about and what kind of impact do I want to have? Do I want to just you know, bigger, higher on the corporate ladder, more responsibility. Is that what's, um, is that the kind of change I want to make? Or do I want to be a part of pushing for things that I know my community needs right now? And I'm, I'm really glad I chose the latter. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure that a lot of people like, don't get me wrong and obviously don't get you wrong either. I'm sure that's great for a lot of people and climbing the corporate ladder, there's opportunity to make change, but, but it's just not where you saw yourself, obviously. Um, exactly. And yep. it's just like, not where you had the opportunity where you were passionate about. So I think that's important that like a lot of people would be totally fulfilled um, moving into those roles, but uh, just not for you. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And we can't be a sort of a slave to our own, you know, path that we set it. If we set it on a goal, sometimes it's a windy road to get there and that can be a very good thing. For sure. Yeah. So kind of going back to teaching, why is this something other than like paying the bills? <laughs> why is this something you continue <laughs> to do? Um, Cause you're still doing it now and, and hopefully getting back into it um, after your maternity leave. 
why is this something that you're so like passionate about when you have like so many avenues now uh, to create change? Yes, I absolutely love teaching. And I I think I was on the right track when I started my undergrad. I I didn't become a high school art teacher. Uh, Instead, I, you know, teach university students about political science and politics. But I, I love the magic that can happen in the classroom when you have a group of people who've chosen to be there because they share an interest in the topic or the subject matter. And uh, for me, teaching is a lot less about, you know, communicating facts and knowledge. Most of that, you know, a reasonably astute person can find on the internet now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, for me, teaching is about helping students figure out what it is that gets them all fired up. What what are they passionate about? Uh, And usually, you know, because politics is so uh, all-encompassing, you know, a lot of students will come in and say, I don't really care that much about politics. I don't care about public policy. You know, this just fit my schedule. And uh, by the end of the class, my goal is to uh, make them realize that, you know, whatever it is they care about, those are political topics. You know, maybe it's the environment, maybe it's uh, the way that streets are designed, maybe it's, uh, you know, helping people with mental health. All of those are political topics that require an understanding of how politics works. And that's what my job is um, as an, as a teacher. So I, I love teaching. I love uh, getting to see that that kind of moment happen with students where, where people figure out uh, what path lies ahead for them and what they really care about. And it's, yeah, it's just, it, it fills me with absolute absolute joy to get to see that happen over and over again. I had some amazing teachers and amazing professors, but I wish that there was more professors like you because you're right. There are a lot that, that just wants like regurgitate information and, and make sure you know, and that's great. But um, some of the best learning experiences I've had, and, and I think I can echo this with Claire in your class, is when you totally just find out that you are passionate about something that you had no idea. Like you went mm-hmm. in, like you say, like, you're like, yeah, like whatever, like, cool. Sounds good. But, um, and then you figure it out and you're running home, like to call my parents and I'm like, Oh my God, you'll never guess like what I learned in class. <laughs> I'm like, you want to read my essay? And they're like, no. <laughs> but, um, and then you start talking about it with other people. And then, you know, like, it's just this whole chain of like, other people can be passionate about it too. Like that's when I've had my best learning experiences. So um, I really commend you for that because I think a lot of profs and, and teachers kind of miss the boat on that. They kind of, um, they're great at what they do, but sometimes it's, it's the experience that makes you learn the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could not agree more. Yeah. On the educational topic. So, so you go through your undergrad, your master's um, and you decide to pursue a PhD, which like, congratulations, that in itself is just so incredible. (laughs) But your dissertation is surrounding the idea of like local government. Can you tell me a bit about this project, um, namely the mayor's project? Sure. Yeah. So uh, while I was working at the city of London, uh, we had a series of of interesting things happen. One of which was uh, the mayor at the time, uh, Joe Fontana, he ran into some, uh, he was charged and he uh, decided to resign from office. And so I remember this morning very clearly, an email came out first thing in the morning announcing that he had resigned effective that day. And so the city manager at the time called uh, kind of a group of the senior leaders into his office and said, okay, we, we don't have a mayor. And uh, someone said, okay, well, we should identify what are the things that the mayor does uh, that we need to find someone else to take care of. 
and there was kind of silence. Uh, everyone sort of looked around and then the obvious things started being named. Well, you know, the mayor chairs the council meeting and the mayor, uh, his signature is on all the Ontario works checks that are going out and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And we figured out who was going to do those things and everybody left the meeting. And for me, it was like a, it was like a gobsmack kind of moment of saying, okay, this is the, you know, illegally anyway, the CEO of a billion dollar corporation that provides more than a hundred services that almost 400,000 people rely on every single day. And we don't really know what his job is. And uh, it was the same time that the, you know, Rob Ford stuff was happening. There are a few other cities that were running into, uh, you know, tricky situations with their mayors. And so I decided then that I would uh, focus my PhD research on what exactly is the role and power of mayors in Canada. Uh, I'd been taught as a master's student that in Canada, we have weak mayors. This is, you'll find this in every textbook on local government that the mayor is, you know, basically just a ceremonial figurehead. But I had seen enough times where the mayor was much, much more than a ceremonial figurehead where they could exercise enormous power when they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to understand that. So yeah, so my, my PhD gave me the time and space to study that in a, a serious way. I traveled across Canada and did interviews with mayors and past mayors and councillors and CAOs and people in the media who follow local politics and, and others, and then produced uh, a project that kind of became affectionately known as the Mayor's Project. Uh, I blogged through the whole thing. And uh, yeah, and it, it basically makes the argument that we, in fact, don't have weak mayors in Canada. Mayors are, can be very powerful, but just in unexpected ways. Oh, wow. Okay. So like you're just taking down the textbooks. That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, my advisor, uh, this guy named Andy Sancton, he's one of the foremost experts on local government of Canada. He's the reason I did my PhD at Western was to get to study with him because the most detailed thing that had been written about mayors, he wrote about 20 years before I was doing this project. And my dissertation really took his work to task actually, which at the time I was like, this is maybe an unwise uh, (laughs) approach, but uh, no, He's, he's wonderful and was a, a perfect advisor for the project. I'm really grateful I got to work with him. That's really cool. Wow. Because you're right. I don't like, and obviously I'm detached from local government um, somewhat. So like, I don't know what the mayor does, but it seems like in big cities, like mayors have a lot of power, but then in smaller cities, they don't like, to me, it's just like a weird concept. Like John Tory, like seems like he has this like, supreme authority like over Toronto but like I I honestly this is so bad I could not tell you who the mayor of Whippy is like I don't know (laughs) so like (laughs) that's like a weird dissonance to me um was it the same like that you found along the way yeah no no it's it is definitely an area that's uh very confused and not well articulated and including and I, I did a lot of interviews with mayors and they themselves would say that you know what they can and can't do in the job is often um yeah, is often not well understood either. But in my in my yeah, not to get too too wonky on this, but <laughs> I, in my dissertation, I argue that mayors really have three jobs uh, at the same time, three leadership roles. Uh, they have a political leadership role where they are they have some power over council and the other elected officials. Okay. Uh, they have an executive role where they have some power within uh, staff and the 
the organizations of local government, like the police board, like the okay. um, health unit, et cetera. And then they have some community power where they can literally phone up the media and say, I've had an announcement I want to make and everybody shows up and all of a sudden everybody's talking about what they want to be talking about. So I looked at what power looks like in each of those three dimensions and found examples where mayors have, uh, have been able to exercise like huge, huge levels of power and influence in those three spaces. Oh, okay. That's so interesting. Um, and your mayor is Don Mitchell, by the way. Okay. Thank yeah, you. He's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, now that you said that, I do know that. Um, so thank you. That's so embarrassing. Um, none of it. None of it. I only follow local politics, even though I would argue it has a, you know, uh, the most significant kind of day-to-day impact on our lives, but yeah. Yeah. No, no doubt it does. I saw um, our, MP, I believe, um, at a Remembrance Day ceremony, and I would recognize him way more than my mayor, um, which I don't know if that's like weird or like um, whatever, but I just feel like that's like a more, more um, like reputable person in our community, I guess. Um, So that's just a random tidbit of knowledge about Whitby. Yeah. Um, well, I think it, I mean, it's, it's, I think it speaks to the dynamics of like Whitby as a community as well. So in Toronto where there's one mayor and, you know, a whole lot of federal and provincial politicians, a lot of MPs and MPPs mm-hmm. and the mayor gets most of the media attention, um, sometimes even more than the premier does uh, in large cities, they have a huge profile. Um, but then when you switch it to a community that, you know, maybe doesn't have as much local media, you're not hearing as much about local politics than federal and provincial politics can kind of take over. So I think that's, yeah, yeah that's an insightful observation okay. about Whitby. Well, okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's probably not that insightful, but thank you. Um, but um, that's actually a good segue because perhaps as a media person myself um, and talking about the way the media kind of controls things, what I think is most powerful on my personal perspective about you is your podcast that you hosted, No Second Chances, um, of which as a feminist and I guess just a human being that lives in Canada, um, I'm a huge fan of. Uh, I listened to most of the episodes when it first kind of came out, loved it, but then I revisited it in preparation for this oh, interview <laughs> and it was great again. So, and also just <laughs> cool on a whole nother level, especially thinking about Canada and the United States and like that whole thing about women in politics um, kind of emerging on a different conversation level now. So the themes in this podcast are just so recursive that it like, it really begs me to wonder like, how did this come about at that point in time? Um, Because I feel like women in politics has always been a conversation. uh, And I guess the lack of women in politics has always been a conversation, but um, why was this like the right time? And I guess, was it 2018 or 2019 that you did it? Yeah. Yeah, um, So why was it like such an important time at that point? Sure. Well, there's another kind of good example of just following uh, passions and curiosities in the moment. So I, uh, yes, I ran in the 2018 election. Uh, I ran for the Liberal Party. It was my first time becoming a member of the party. It was my first time running as a candidate. And I spent several months uh, just knocking on people's doors every single day, as many doors as I could. I ended up standing on uh, tens of thousands of doorsteps. And it was a pretty angry election. People were pretty mad at the Liberal Party for lots of uh, very fair reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was also a lot of negativity about Kathleen Wynne. 
uh, in a very personal hatred towards her. And I would have many, many people at the door say, you know, you seem great, but I cannot support your leader. And I would say, okay, you know, so what, what is it about her that uh, you don't like? And often they would kind of struggle for a moment. They would, there'd be a pause. And sometimes they would have like a, a policy answer, which is always fair in politics. You know, I don't like the decision on this. But too many times, in my view, they would say things like, you know, it's just like her face. Or they would say, it's just like the sound of her voice. I just, I just can't stand it. Or I just don't like her. And so when the election was all done and, you know, the party suffered its worst defeat in our history, uh, we, you know, me and every single new candidate uh, lost. It was those conversations that I, I couldn't quite get out of my head. And so I uh, started looking at this and was really surprised actually to uh, learn online that we'd only ever had 12 women uh, as a first minister, so a prime minister or premier. Uh, they last half as long as men do. And uh, they tend to uh, only come in in really difficult political circumstances where a party is, you know, kind of on its way out anyway. And, and this was the kicker for me, was that when they run for re-election, uh, they lose every time. We've never re-elected a woman into one of those roles. And so I pitched a project to uh, a phenomenal organization, a think tank in Ottawa called Canada 2020, that we do a project called No Second Chances, where we would go and talk to these women and ask them why we don't see women uh, leading as successfully, like in terms of uh, electorally, as, as long and as often as men and get their perspective on it and produce a podcast out of it. Mm-hmm. And so we we did that and had the chance to go and sit in their living rooms and at their kitchen tables for hours and hours. Uh, almost every interview included uh, tears and laughs and, uh, you know, got a good sense of their rise and fall from politics and their their sense of why we don't see women uh, leading as often or as long as we see with men in Canada. For sure. And it's so it goes in part. So it's it's very powerful um, how they intertwine with each other in terms of what they say. Um, and I, I know there was one part that's sticking out to me right now um, where they kind of all talk about community. Um, so it's like kind of just interesting to see what is like kind of flows between them. But in this sense, like why did you feel that a podcast would be the best method for this type of project? Like it could have been, I guess, like a, a show or um like a blog of some sort like why did you feel that like audio recording would be like the best way to get this out uh, so originally I thought about the project as being a book actually mm-hmm. um, and I uh, on some good advice of, of some good friends when I was starting to think through the project uh, there's just something powerful about getting to hear someone's voice Mm -hmm. and getting to hear the story uh, as told by them. And I think podcasting is, is a really powerful medium where, you know, through time and space, you can hear someone's story with, you know, the fullness of their own voice, their intonation. And, and given that these are really important, not only political stories and parts of uh, Canada's political history, but a tough topic, uh, we thought that it was important that we don't provide Canadians just with like a, you know, another report or another book on this, but instead a chance to hear from the women themselves in a really efficient way through podcasting. Mm-hmm. You're right. I think it is. Um, like I'm a huge reader, so I probably would have read it, but um, I think it is so much a, like so much better to hear it right from their voice. Cause you can really just hear like the struggle or like the laughter or um, whatever that you can't capture in words, obviously um, mm-hmm. when you're just transcribing it and b this idea that 
it's more accessible too. So are people like, it's not even just like affordability, I guess. It's just like the ability to like turn it on. Um, and then if you're interested, you keep going. And if you're not, you don't keep going. It's there for you and it's free. And it's all of these things um, that can really get information to people quickly, which is personally what I love about podcasting. It's just like such an interesting medium to me. Um, but I think that really benefited this type of project. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, we wanted to make it feel like a listener was, you know, in a conversation with all of these amazing women, kind of all at the same time and about um, kind of the various common parts of their story. And uh, yeah, podcasting, I agree with you. It's just, it's such a powerful medium to be able to reach people that way. Mm-hmm. So in one of the episodes, and and it kind of is a theme that goes throughout all of the episodes, um, just because of what it covers, but Um, You talk about this idea of the political ambition gap. Um, Can you give like a little like definition of that? Sure. Yeah. So the the sort of way it's often described is that when you ask little kids, you know, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, do you want to be the prime minister someday? Or they've done lots of studies in this in the States. Do you want to be the president someday? Uh, They will answer yes in about even proportion. And then in the years that follow, uh, as kids get a little bit older, and then definitely once they get into their teenage years, the number of girls who say that they aspire to senior political leadership roles starts to drop way off. Uh, And then there have been other studies that I think are are even more concerning where, you know, a a pool of candidates uh, who are men and who are women who have the exact same resume. So they will, you know, two lawyers with similar backgrounds, two doctors, two uh, teachers, et cetera. Uh, And they will ask the women and the men, do you think that, you know, do you ever think about running for office? Do you think you're qualified for office and so on? And the women report that they feel far less qualified to do the job than the men do. And this same finding has been um, replicated in study after study. And so it's sometimes described as being an ambition gap, sometimes a, a confidence gap. Um, but it, essentially, it's it's the sort of imposter syndrome that women tend to feel more than men, where they feel like they are not qualified. And I think it's a result of a, a number of things. One of them is that when we are kids, you know, we 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 get a sense of gender roles very early. You know, when you only see men uh, being the prime minister or standing up and making big speeches, when every political leader looks like usually an older, white, straight, affluent man, if you don't fit into that category, uh, there's sort of a, an unconscious sense that that is not a place where you belong or you can be. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I think there are a variety of other sort of social forces where women, you know, have to take on other roles. They take on more family responsibility. They take on more, you know, care for age parents and so on. And it prevents uh, women from uh, seeing themselves as being potential leaders to the same level that uh, that men do. And so that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that women are underrepresented in every level of Canadian politics, even today. Mm-hmm. And this idea of, um, it's I guess it's more commonly in like societal, uh, less politics um, ways, um, but the, the confidence gap, um, I've heard it a lot before, I guess, being in like fourth year last year um, and applying to jobs now. Um, and it's kind of just at this level to begin with, not even in politics at all, where it's women like apply for jobs that they're overqualified for, that they have way too much experience for, so to speak, and men apply for jobs they're unqualified for and this obviously contributes just on a on 
a base level to like the parity that can exist in careers. So this is a similar idea in politics too, which you go into like depth with in part three um, of the podcast. So that idea is so interesting to me that like, it's not just in politics, but it's really, it, it is deep in politics, but it is deep everywhere else too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that so interesting. And then you also speak about the idea that women basically have to be begged to get into politics, yeah. um, <laughs> like begged, whereas men like need like a little nudge, like, oh, maybe you should do it like over a beer or something. That idea is just crazy to me because I can totally see it. Totally see it. Yeah. I have asked a lot of people to run for office. I um, I sort of try to make it a habit every time I come across someone that I think would be, uh, you know, phenomenal to sit down at some point quietly and have a conversation about if it's something of interest. And uh, it, it's very, very hard to get women to say yes. It's much, much easier. You, you can ask anyone who's, I think, once you've asked five people, 10 people, like you don't have to ask very many before you start to see this pattern really strong. And uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge. But I think one one thing that for me was a, um, a kind of learning in, even over the last year is just how deeply seated uh, these sort of social uh, learnings about, about gender and about leadership, uh, how tricky they are even for people once you do step forward to run. So, you know, a, a small, but I, I think sort of telling example of this was as women, we are socialized that being small is better, right? We're constantly bombarded with messages. where like, we literally physically want to be small. You know, you look at women sitting on an airplane and they're like, you know, pulling themselves as, as tightly together as they can to take up as, as little space as possible. You do not see men uh, sitting the same way. <laughs> and so, you know, for me, you know, I, I ran for leader of a political party for the first time and I, uh, I had to be big, right? I had to be able to step into a room with thousands of people and fill that space. I had to be able to walk into, you know, rooms of people who were older than me and more experienced than me and certainly better connected and wealthier and all kinds of things. And and, and act like I own the place in a way that is was very uncomfortable and pretty unnatural for me. And so I actually benefited from it. I some someone volunteered on the campaign who um, had experience coaching uh, on this kind of thing. But being told, like, you know, you can be as big as this room, you can fill this space, and that is okay. It, it was like a thing I had to give myself permission mm-hmm. to do. And so, you know, even once a woman decides that she's going to run, even once she starts to face those overt barriers, there are still the barriers uh, inside each of us in terms of our confidence and our feeling of whether or not we belong in those places. And that that's a tough barrier to overcome as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And as as someone who has like a fairly big personality, I still cannot like get over that. Like the speeches that you would do and whatever, it was just, you're right. It did fill a room. So whoever trained you to do that or whatever was in you, um, <laughs> kudos um, because you're right. And it, it's, it's totally accurate. You're trying to shrink yourself and all that. And um, it to- while you were talking, I was like, Oh yeah. Like you just need to like get the, um, like what men do, like the man spread, like you just got to man spread yourself like all over the place and like just yeah. make yourself as big as possible. Yeah, take, take up the space room. we need. Yes, but we, it's like we have to be told that that's okay or at least uh, I had to be told that that was okay. And oh uh, yeah, yeah, it's a sad comment on how, how deep-seated these, uh, you know, understandings of gender and leadership and things are in each of us. It's hard to overcome. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess as like a result of this podcast, um, you correct me if I'm wrong, you made a report based on the like conclusions that you made in this. Okay. So at the end of the project, um, the, the women who have served as first ministers had actually not ever got together before, which I was kind of surprised to learn. Yeah, I, don't wow. know, I, I sort of thought they, not that they like hang out on weekends, but that there would have been some <laughs> sort of uh, official gathering at some point in time, but, yeah, but that was not yeah. the case. So we brought them all together in Ottawa uh, of 2019. And, uh, you know, had an event where people who enjoyed the podcast series could come and hear them uh, speak directly and, um, and, you know, journalists facilitate the discussions and so on. It was, it was a great event. But before the event, uh, in a private setting, we also got them together and said, you know, we've got, we've built a pretty large listenership here. Uh, Canada 2020 has done a great job of getting the stories out, but maybe now we need to turn to action and uh, identify some things that you would like to see change in terms of, uh, you know, Canadian politics if we want to see more women lead. And so uh, the women worked together on a letter. And the day of the event, we released uh, an open letter to Canadians uh, from the women who have risen to the top to say, if you want to see more women uh, in senior leadership roles in Canada, here are a few things that uh, that you need to that you need to do. And so there's direction in there about uh, childcare. There's direction in there about uh, things that political parties need to do. All of it's available at uh, nosecondchances.ca. But it was sort of the lasting product of, uh, of the podcast. It was very concrete and action-oriented and from uh, the women themselves. And from this, um, I'm going to deduce that you, um, it's it, the time frame seems very similar. So potentially inspired you to run yeah. um, <laughs> for the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, yes, it, this, is, this is what I mean about, you know, the straight line to like, I'm going to graduate from my master's and become the city manager and instead, you know, quit yeah. a job, run for office, do a podcast, run for leader. <laughs> uh, they all, for me, have sort of... Uh, yeah, each each one is sort of led to the next. So yeah, so as the podcast was ending, uh, the Ontario Liberal Party was uh, looking for a new leader. A leadership race was about to begin, and I had lots of people um, asking me if that's something that I'd be open to doing. And it's pretty hard to say, oh, you know, no, not me. I'm not, uh, you know, old enough, experienced enough, etc. After coming off of this project, uh, meeting with these unbelievably inspiring women and feeling very fired up that we need to see more uh, women in these roles. And so, yeah, so I, I took the leap and I, I launched a campaign. I had uh, no idea at the beginning whether it would be something that would catch on or not. I had like 10 volunteers and had uh, no money and no, <laughs> no structure, no, uh, no anything. And by the end, we had, you know, hundreds of volunteers all over the province. Uh, we raised mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars. We had a really great showing at the convention. And, and I believe we were able to um, push the party in some important directions. So yeah, it was a, and, and I personally grew a ton through the experience. So yeah, no, so, for sure. Yeah, I great. remember my sister telling me, oh, my professor's running. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, like, cool, whatever. Like, I, no offense, of course. Yeah, no, like, I, like, I really couldn't care less, like, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then she, she's like, okay, hey, well, I'm going to one of her rallies. Like, so you might as well come with me. We lived together at the time. So I'm like, okay, yep, cool. I was like, 
captivated. I was like, this is going to be so lame, like whatever. It was amazing. It was so good. I was like crying. I was laughing. Like it was so good. I cry at everything. So like fair, but, um, and I know, but like, this is the thing. Like, I know I wasn't alone. Like your campaign reached so many people who were like maybe interested, maybe passionate about politics from like the sidelines. Um, and they became like so politically engaged. And I know this because my whole family, like jumped on board and like got <laughs> yeah, like it was so amazing. It was so powerful. Um, can you like talk like a, a bit about your campaign for a minute? Like I feel like your ideas seem like at first listen or first hearing or first reading so like radical, but they're so simple um, and could be so effective for like not just our province, but I feel like a lot of places and and, and governments. So do you want to like talk about oh, it for thanks. a little second? <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, as you say, I ran on a, a bunch of very simple ideas, uh, all mm-hmm. of which came from, I talked about standing on all those angry doorsteps uh, where people were just totally fed up with politics and they feel like politics has become this all or nothing fight where parties are just interested in winning elections and they will do anything to be able to get and hold on to power. And somewhere in there, um, the tone and tenor has become a total turnoff for people where they disengage completely or they feel, uh, you know, totally disgusted and uninspired by what's going on. And the cost of that, I think, is too high. Uh, It means that we have very few people who are interested in getting involved in politics and not enough people turning out to vote. And uh, I think it holds us back from being able to actually solve problems by working together. So I am I am firmly in opposition to uh, hyper-partisanship where everything is about the party's interests instead of the interests of people. And I want to build uh, a different kind of political party where we are very focused on the well-being of people, which is what politics is supposed to be all about, uh, which means sometimes we're open to working with other parties. Uh, sometimes we're open to uh, championing ideas that weren't our own. We're not always focused on ripping down the other parties, but instead working together with people, even if they have different ideas than we do, to improve people's lives. Full stop. Mm-hmm. For me, that's and what politics should be all about. For sure. And you referenced, um, I went to like a couple of your events. So I know this a bit. Um, <laughs> but you referenced like uh, like local. So like reaching back to your like local experience, you referenced like the way that like local governments work and it's not party focus. It's, it's just, you know, like who's there and who's working and like who's working on behalf of the people in the city yeah. or town or whatever it may be. So that was so interesting to me because I hadn't thought about it like that before. Yeah, I think, you know, having spent a decade working in local government where there aren't political parties, it is amazing to see how people with different opinions, when they have to work together and listen to each other, uh, better decisions get made. You know, instead, uh, when it's parties and they're just trying to have their positions be in contrast to each other and they're interested in the other party slipping up so that they can have a you know nice gotcha moment that that does not lead to good decision making uh, at least in my my experience and observation so I, I think provincial governments actually can learn something from uh, effective councils where you know they work well together even though they don't hold the same ideological views I want to see more of that at Queen's Park mm-hmm Absolutely. And I'm going to read this because I think it's so important. So you did come from being a long shot candidate, 
bet at the end you <laughs> and I was not at the convention so I was watching it on CB24 they just they were like spoke very highly of you I imagine you've seen that coverage before also the Toronto Star uh, like called you a rising star by the end so <laughs> it's exciting in terms of like the media world where I <laughs> reside well one thing that's great about not being the front runner is you can just go out and say what you want to say like I swore during my speech mm-hmm. I sang I at the end it. of my speech <laughs> Uh, we, you know, we, we had a phenomenal campaign and at the end we wanted to leave it all on the table. And I think that we did. And it was, yeah, I, for me, it was, I've got no regrets looking back on it. I was just a great experience and I'm, I'm really proud, even though I'm not the leader, I'm really proud to be working with the leader and with a group of people who, uh, responded so well, not to me, but to ideas about how politics can be done differently. Mm -hmm. And I should add that, not only were you a woman running for provincial party leadership, you were also pregnant at the time. (laughs) No, like at the time I was like, this is pretty crazy. And like, even now thinking back on it, I'm like, nope, that was pretty crazy. Like (laughs) so cool. And like, I would have been dead tired um, in my normal non-pregnant oh, I was. Life. Oh, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't imagine. Oh, I was. Yeah. I So three-month-old Flora is now, um, you know, hearing all, all the funny stories about our, the beginning of our journey together, which mm-hmm. included basically every single day. I think I took Christmas day off, but otherwise uh, every single day traveling across Ontario, speaking to, you know, uh, sometimes it was people on the doorstep. Sometimes it was, uh, you know, hearing from small groups in the church basement. Sometimes it was thousands of people and uh, she got to be a part of, of all of that. And there's no question. I, I was exhausted uh, the whole time, <laughs> but it was also a really very present reminder of why this actually matters, you know? healthcare and education and things that the province deals with uh, are, are as a new mom feel even more important than they did before. So she's, she's been good at grounding me in terms of uh, keeping an eye on the prize of why these things actually are important. Mm -hmm. Jumping back to your speech. um, It was like my favorite speech ever. And I'm not going to just like pump your tires. Like I totally mean this. It was like, if like, just as like, if not more, so maybe like different context. So like a bit different, but just as compelling as like Kamala's speech like I know no I did I watched it again like last week and it was like oh my god like I literally am gonna post a clip of it it was so good I'm like sitting here all my family's at the convention I'm sitting at home on the couch doing like quote-unquote homework and just (laughs) crying I'm like oh my god this is so good so inspiring so I really do mean that I'm not just saying that um because you're on the recording with me so I I loved the experience and I I was the lucky one who got to be on the stage but it really was the result of a huge number of talented people coming together Mm -hmm. and it's really cool to be a part of it yeah a perfect like little bow on the on the end of that um, campaign, which I guess it really wasn't the end. You're obviously still very involved, but the end of that campaign, so to speak, you learned so much and you obviously grew through this whole experience. Um, But what are like the most important lessons if you could boil it down to like one or two? Um, Yeah, I learned, I learned a ton. um, I think about my, so yeah, like in terms of small learnings, uh, I learned a lot about myself and uh, what issues, um, yeah, what issues matter most uh, to me? You know, doing a leadership race, you, you, you have, it's this amazing gift of getting to hear from tons and tons of people about the challenges they face in their lives. And sometimes I was meeting with people who had lived very different lives than I have, who uh, had experienced 
uh, things that I hadn't and hearing their stories for me was really powerful. So one thing, one, one of those experiences that sticks out is um, I had an opportunity to sit down with a group of uh, PSWs and they talked about what their work life is like working in long-term care in Ontario. Uh, they shared with me about the, you know, uh, sometimes just horrifying uh, lack of support that they have, you know, being only paid for, you know, an eight minute uh, window to give someone a bath and then hopping unpaid onto a bus to get to your next appointment. You know, sometimes uh, these are, you know, if you're, um, your client is someone who, you know, is, needs a little bit more time or they're having uh, a difficult day or they weigh a lot more than you do or any, any number of challenges that would make it difficult to get somebody in and out of a bath in eight minutes. You know, I think anyone can understand how, how stressful that would be and to not have any personal job security to be not being well paid through that. It was just uh, you know, I'd, I'd certainly read about the challenges in long-term care, and I know that um, there are weaknesses there. But hearing from uh, it was women, all women, uh, racialized women who live this experience every day, I, I, I was in tears, and I have thought about that conversation almost every day since, especially during the COVID crisis, as we've seen how even much more difficult um, their jobs mm-hmm. have become. So. Yeah, it's, it, it was a really, you know, I certainly learned a lot of, uh, a lot about, you know, different policy issues in parts of Ontario, but it was really um, getting a sense about, you know, what are the issues that just feel wrong and that feel most important. And uh, for me, issues around inequality, uh, like, you know, a largely racialized female workforce being so poorly paid uh, and having the enormous responsibility of looking after some of our oldest and most vulnerable citizens. Uh, for me, it just, it was something that I, I knew a bit about and cared a bit about and came out of the campaign, just feeling absolutely on fire that that needs to change. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's, um, maybe that's <laughs> kind of a, a rambly answer, but no. um, you know, it, no, it was good. a benefit of getting to hear a lot of different stories and, and learn about a few uh, issues that need a lot more urgent attention. And that's definitely one of them. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess taking these lessons and moving forward, you've obviously done so many incredible things um, and worked in so many spaces, which like I've said, it's just, you know, honestly, it is so Very cool restless, I think, as I say this. I'm like, no, oh, it's a lot so of different cool. things. I like, I'm not the same because it's in different areas, but I'm like just jumping all over the place. So it's like, kind of like just a, like, Oh, look, you. Kate's doing it too. Well, <laughs> look, you, you're, you know, we're living through this, you know, unbelievably difficult time. I don't even think we've fully processed uh, what a profound change this year has meant for each of us. And you've identified uh, a big gap, which is that people are really lacking in social connection right now. They're thirsty for being able to have the kind of uh, interaction with other people that would be a part of normal life and we can't have now. And you, you found a way to fill that gap by doing, uh, you know, creating this from nothing. And I'm just, I am so impressed that you've done this. And I'm so grateful that we live in a world where, you know, people are willing to step up and solve problems that they see um, because it's so needed, especially this year. So, yeah, I, I, I totally admire you for being willing to take a, you know, you probably didn't think of yourself as uh, doing a podcast like this a year ago. And here yeah. you are. So Thank good you. for you. Good for you. That means for a lot. Into the Thank moment. you. That's so kind. Like that really does mean a lot to me. So thank you. But you're obviously still like you've like accomplished things that people would want to do in like their lifetime and you're still so young. So (laughs) what does the future have for you as you see it 
politically, personally, professionally, whatever you want, whatever route you're going on this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of um, a lot of change in the last few years, and so I suspect that will probably continue. I, I don't see a. We talked a lot about the straight line to the end. I, I do not see that. I, I think I'm going to continue to follow uh, passions as they come. I, I'm running again for the party in uh, 2022, and so I'm uh, yeah really enjoying being a candidate again and, uh, you know, right now being, uh, reaching out to people in the community and trying to get a sense of, uh, how they're doing in this difficult year. So, um, still very involved in politics in London. Uh, I'm on the campaign committee as uh, a vice chair provincially. And so I'll get an opportunity to, uh, you know, to see what a provincial campaign looks like at the province wide scale. And then I'm, I'm teaching, I'm, uh, doing a variety of, uh, of other um, projects, including two books related to the No Second Chances project. And, uh, and I'm a new mom and I'm absolutely loving that role too. I spend a lot of time each day reading kids stories and singing songs and uh, practicing ABCs over and over and over again. And I am absolutely loving it. So yeah, lots of things, lots of things going on. I, I'm not exactly sure what the future looks like, but I feel very happy uh, knowing that I'm working on things that I feel passionate about. And so far that hasn't led me So, of course. Yeah, I feel like um, that's a funny question for you uh, that I had planned before we got to talking about this. So um, obviously the future holds um, whatever turns it will take on you and you can only see the next one, which is what you've kind of listed out there. So those things are obviously fulfilling, but those lead you to other passions as well um, as you've had along your journey. Let's hope so. Yep. <laughs> I'm sure they will. So not to worry. Uh, I always finish off with a couple like rapid fire, like get to know you questions. Um, okay. So we'll just do one or two because I know we're getting to the end of our time here or maybe a little over. Are you ready? I, I think so. Go for it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So my first question that I always ask is if you could hang or like quarantine with any five people, who would it be? Uh, they could be dead, alive, um, famous, friends, like whoever you'd like. Any oh. five. Any. Oh, that is, so, that's a very hard question. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm such a nerd. I, I would, I would probably go with all political leaders and there are a couple of women that I'm, I'm like obsessed with right now. That's, and I use that word, uh, yeah, very carefully. I, so, uh, Jacinda Ardern, prime minister of New Zealand, would definitely be one of them Oh yeah, because of the unbelievable way that she has led her country through COVID mm-hmm. uh, just incredible, uh, incredible leader. And she, every speech that she gives, I'm like in tears and I'm like, yes, that's the kind of politics I want to see. So mm-hmm. she would be on the And list. as a new mom too. Yes. Yeah. So, she's, yeah, yes. Yeah. I just she's love and very adore her. Cool. And then I think, um, t- just because the American, uh, politics is so front of mind right now, uh, I'd probably choose a few, uh, amazing female leaders in the States. Certainly, uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, uh, Stacey Abrams for what she did yeah. uh, after losing her own race and then, you know, losing the battle but winning the war. She mobilized people to the point where Georgia turned. And I think that's just amazing. Uh, I'm a big AOC fan, so I'd, oh, I'd me too. throw her into the mix. And uh, yeah, this is that's two American. There are three Americans. So, uh, yeah, then I would add in Christopher Freeland from... Ooh, yes. 
yeah, to add a Canadian flavor and just because she is like an unbelievably brilliant, talented leader too. And that would be one heck of a quarantine. I, can I was only just going to say, I about. think <laughs> you would really solve the world's problems. Like that's not even just a saying in that group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, like my dream uh, dinner date. So yeah, you know, for sure. That's, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's quite a crew. So moving on to a more superficial question, um, what show, if any, I know you are probably busy with Flora, but what show are you binging right now? Or like, what are you like obsessed with? So this is my like absolute guilty pleasure. Every time Flora is, uh, is eating or sleeping and I have time to kill, uh, I am watching like an embarrassing volume of YouTube travel videos. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So, and I think I love traveling and I always have trips on the horizon and we, you know, didn't get to go on the trips we had planned this year and, you know, may not for next year. And so, uh, every day I watch different YouTube videos of very random, obscure places in the world just to try to feel like I get to be there for five or 10 minutes. So. Oh, that's so cool. I've heard a lot of people doing that, um, with like virtual reality headsets, um, like going for like walks and stuff like in Paris or like whatever, um, with like VR headsets. But I know that's like, obviously not as like good. That's very high tech. I don't have any equipment to do that, but that is maybe going to be on my Christmas list. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that's a, like a big ticket Christmas item, but, um, yeah, I've heard that a lot of people have been doing that and it's like fulfilling their like wanderlust vibes right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to yes. check that out. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Last one, um, because I am expecting a good answer. So no pressure. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite book that you've like fairly recently read? Like something that you are, is kind of like on your mind still. Hmm just ordered and have read a few excerpts online of Stacey Abrams uh, most recent book but I haven't finished it yet so I I feel like I shouldn't give that answer um yeah there's a book uh, that I I just reread uh, it came out about two years ago by a woman who worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign and it's called run for something. And it's, it's like a fairly how to of how to run a political campaign. And so now that I'm a political candidate again, I was uh, taking a look at it, but the, the first chapter is just this like throwdown of why we need more women in politics. And it's written in a really conversational, just kind of right to the, right to the heart of it uh, way. It's funny. I laugh. I cry every time I read it. So uh, definitely a book that I would recommend to anybody who's thinking about politics, especially if you're a woman. It's called Run for Something. Well worth the time. Okay. I always ask that question so selfishly because I'm such a like bookworm that I actually am just looking for my own like book recommendations. So, <laughs> nice. so anyway. Well, you will um, enjoy it. Oh, amazing. Um, I'll put that on my list. Um, so thank you so much uh for carving out time a uh for all your like knowledge you're so well spoken like i just love listening to you so thank you so much like i really appreciate it oh and thanks for the invite this has been uh yeah i also feel like i can't hang in life generally and so it's really nice to get to hang with you today and get just get to talk (laughs) about life in the future and uh yeah as i said i'm i'm really impressed you stepped up and did this at a time when the world really needs things like this so thanks for the invitation to be part of it Oh, thank you so much. I'm 
Alia Ballas, and you have been listening to Can't Hang. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you loved today's show, please subscribe and don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Visit canhang.simplecast.com to check out all the incredible people I've interviewed and who's coming soon. Much love goes out to all those who have been posting about Can't Hang on social. Please tag me in your posts at Can't Hang Pod and please continue to send me suggestions of who you'd love to see in future episodes. I have an incredible lineup, but I'm always looking for people outside my bubble. Please tune in next Thursday and hang with me and my next guest. This show is produced by me, Alia Ballas, and the music was created by Quan. Quan.